Okay. Well, Peter, I'm really glad to hear that you've made a change in your practice. Tell me a little more about it. Yes, well, Banta and I, we were talking about three things the last time, which were right view, and secondly, about sati and right effort. And what I recognized is that in my practice, where right effort was missing, and I was just being aware of what I'm doing and always or most of the time being just aware what is going on in the present moment, but mm -hmm. I didn't really found a way to handle bad situations. And last time what I've learned is that how to handle with unwholesome thoughts and bringing up wholesome thoughts, which was basically right effort we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And so you're getting immediate results. I think so, hopefully. <laughs> well, it, no, it's not hopefully and think so like in the future, you already can experience it right now. So then I would definitely say, yes, I'm making progress. That, that what you were actually kind of indicating was that it almost feels too good to be true. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And yet, you know, it's true. You're experiencing it directly. OK, OK, this is exactly what we mean when the Buddha talks about it. Uh, and this little phrase that I'm about to say is so profoundly important and that it is in many places throughout the suttas. The most famous place it is in the Dhammapada. But it is in throughout the Majjhima Nikaya. It is also in some of the very ancient literature. So this is something that has been done all along. And that is, is that the Buddha says that his teaching is good in the beginning. Good in the middle. And good in the end, especially when it's said with the right meanings, phrasing and timing so that the students gets it correctly. If they get it correctly, then it really is good right from the very beginning. And so uh, that actually then answers immediately that huge, huge nagging question of in Western Buddhism, why do some people think that meditation is potentially dangerous? Mm. Okay. OK, or why do you have actually rescue squads of people who were there to help people, and, and when I mean the rescue squad, I'm talking about one, the volunteers at retreats. Number two, um, uh, there are websites that have whole groups of psychologists who specialize in helping people get out of the mess that they've gotten into with meditation. Mm -hmm. I see. Right. Okay. And the reason for that is, is because it's so openly practiced the way that you had practicing before in the sense of noting and noticing or being aware, having choiceless awareness and and just <clears throat> living in the mess that we've made. Yeah, as being if, right, yeah. right. As if living in the mess that we've made is going to clean up the mess. Or in the in the sense of an animal that's caged in a too tight a place or other situations to where the animal will spoil its own nest. And then that's the only thing that they know how to do. And so uh, this is what humans do on at least a mental level. It's interesting that we talk about hygiene and physical hygiene, and they even talk about mental hygiene, and they don't really understand that what mental hygiene is all about taking a bath, taking a mental bath. That's in fact, taking a bath is 90% of all uh, physical hygiene. If you've got a dirty body, it's going to get sick. And in fact, they know that exactly that that was the cause of leprosy is not washing. Mm -hmm. OK, uh, and so uh, we live in a very clean environment now to where we wash, not just wash our bodies, but we wash our clothes, we wash our cars, we just wash and wash. But 500 years ago, 
uh, especially in cold climates, they thought that it was somehow unhealthy to have a bath. Okay. okay. I didn't know that. Um, that was especially true of sailors. If you if you're a sailor and you have a choice of either taking a salt water bath or no bath at all, generally the no bath at all is a better. <laughs> That in fact, if you've ever been swimming in the ocean, what's the first thing you do after you get out of the ocean? You just had a bath in the ocean. What's the first thing you do? You take a bath. Yeah, in fresh definitely. water. You take. You get under the shower and you get all yeah. that salt off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So in this regard, we're talking about that the very first thing we do in Buddhism is take a mental bath. We take a bath and that we figure out that that's actually the most important thing that there is to do is to keep the mind clean, to take the bath, which means to take the unwholesome thoughts out. Um, there's something that uh, can can be put together. Uh, in In one place I saw on Reddit that uh, there was a group that was asking a question, and the question is, what is something that is really dangerous, but that people do not perceive it as danger? Okay. And yeah. so the answer to that, obviously, is unwholesome thought, because people think that mm -hmm. my thoughts are my thoughts, and they're okay. Mm -hmm. That, in I fact, there is a group of or uh, a pair of uh, stage magicians, Penn and Teller, mm -hmm. uh, that's very famous. And Penn has said, um, in the sense of uh, free speech and actions, that he thinks that it doesn't matter what he thinks, so long as he doesn't behave and he doesn't act, he's okay. Mm -hmm. Now that goes exactly along with the old Brahmin system that said that that action is like carving into stone. Mm -hmm. That if you if you commit an act, if you hurt somebody, if you break their arm or something like that, that's really strong things to do to where mm -hmm. uh, wrong speech then would be like writing in the sand mm -hmm. that that can be protected, but more than likely it'll fade away to where wrong thought is like writing in the air or writing on the water. I see. In other words, yeah. it doesn't have much value. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha says exactly backwards. And that is, is that the mind is the forerunner. The mind controls everything. Yeah. We just don't realize that. And so uh, if we have a, a, a spark of a bad thought about someone and set something in motion, we can actually just a spark can wind up getting someone killed. Okay, an example of that is, is that when the cop stops you, if you show him even a spark of anger, that's going to escalate to the point you got to get yeah. shot. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, but the anger that you would distribute to a cop would already be anger that you built up in the mind. You're already pissed at him just before he even told you to roll down the window. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. OK, so this is the reason why uh, beginning to work from the very beginning in meditation is the very first and really most important thing that's to be done is to bring our mind out of unwholesome states into wholesome states. Yeah. Which would be another way of thinking is, is coming out of the kinds of thoughts that can possibly lead to dukkha. All right, this is an important point because what I'm looking at is, is that there is a kind of thought that is wholesome because it's nurturing in the sense of everything is okay, everything is all right, nothing is broken, let the sleeping dog lie. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Okay, versus the way that our society is built is this hubble is too strong, too small, and it's dangerous. I need a bigger house. We don't need a village. We need a city. 
Okay. We don't need to yell at each other. We need telephones. First the crank kind, and then the push button kind, and now the cell phones, but it's always more and better and better because we can compare, I like this, but I like this better. And because yeah. I like this better, I don't like this so much. Okay, this is a comparative mind, which we could also use labels like a judgmental mind, but a better way of looking at it is by using it in the sense of a critical mind that we think critically. Yeah. Well, now you know where the word critic, critical comes from. You know what critic means. Uh -huh. You know that the same word is to criticize. All right. That in fact, if you're going to say that building is tall, you have to compare it to something that's not. Okay, and so this is where the idea of criticism is, is this drawing boundaries, making distinctions, mm. and liking this and not liking that, and making these boundaries and distinctions ignorantly. And now we have a classic definition of the second noble truth. Wanting things or wanting to get rid of things that is based upon a feeling that we're ignorant of. And that ignorant feeling is, I like it. And I like it means I want it. And if I like it and want it, that makes it good. And if I don't like it, and I'm trying to get rid of it, that means I think it's evil. And there's the birth of good and evil based upon what we like and don't like, rather than out of wisdom about making sure under investigation that this is in fact right, and this is in fact not right. I have a question to that. Yes. Uh huh. And during my, uh, during our last, or during the time to our last talk, I had many situations which were very stressful. And is it the right way to handle it like this that you recognize that there's stress and that you put up something wholesome like relax or putting up meta or something else? Certainly. Yeah. So this was the, the way I handled very or many, many situations during the last time. And well, what I've that just means is, is that you find many opportunities to stress yourself out. And now yeah. you're beginning to notice that you're stressing yourself out and you've got a new tool that you can unstress yourself. Congratulations. Yeah. This is this is a new skill that you're developing right here and now that you're taking great benefit from. Yeah. But if you were only noting the stress, yeah, then you're just going to see a lot of stress. Yeah, but I now you're seeing was, a lot of success. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I found that this was the the essence of our last talk, so it was very helpful, definitely. Well, this is the essence of the teaching of the Buddha is yeah. that we have these judgmental thoughts, these critical mm -hmm. thoughts, we criticize ourselves. And in fact, that's how you got yourself stressed out, put yourself in distress, is by criticizing things. Mm -hmm. And yeah. how you get yourself out of stress is by coming out of the stressing uh, criticism into the wholesome nurturing thoughts. Yeah. And you could have been doing that all along if you'd only realized that that was the big problem. And yeah. you thought that the stress was coming from the situation. Yeah, could have prevented me from, from very much stressful situations, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah, the situation is never stressful. Yeah. It's, the, it's the situationer or the person there or the self. When we become selfish, then we put ourselves into the situation in danger. That's the stress. That yeah. this is me on the line here. Mm -hmm. yeah. But when we're not selfish about it, when you say, okay, it's just a situation, let's see what happens. Definitely, yeah. And it's so easy. It feels easy now, but... You have to practice that. You have yeah. to practice changing the mind. Yeah. That in a way, if you want to use this kind of language, then that's the real letting go. But this letting go is not merely, um, let us say, letting gravity do all the work. 
so that we let it go like that. Yeah. No, it doesn't work like that. It's because much more like letting it go means. Get <laughs> 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 Yeah. It's much more like that. There's some effort in it. Why yeah. is there effort in it? Is is because really what's going on is, is that we were clinging and holding to it because we thought that there was some advantage to that. That there is, in fact, gratification. We only have the idea of wanting to let it go once we begin to see the danger in it. When we begin to see the dukkha, only then are we let it willing to let it go but there's still resistance built in. And yeah. so that's why that first first uh, group of times, it does sometimes take a lot of effort to let go of those unwholesome thoughts and to bring about and, and bring the mind back wholesome again. But once we get into that habit, once we can control the mind and keep only wholesome thoughts in, then that's most of the, uh, of the work that needs to be done. Yeah. That's why the Buddha talks about it in so many suttas. Gosh, I can name you so many that has in various different ways. For instance, in the sutta about the Eightfold Noble Path, he talks about one's right effort in the sense of one's right effort is to change our view from unwholesome to unwholesome view and to change our thoughts from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts. And yeah. at that level, he's also talking about it from changing our attitude from an unwholesome attitude into a wholesome attitude. Yeah. This is one's right effort. But at a moment-by-moment -moment level, uh, this is what we call hindrances or the thoughts that would hinder us from being in a really wholesome, happy state. Yeah. Okay. And so these are the thoughts that come up, and that's where we have to take the right effort, Dan, is to remove those thoughts and replace them with wholesome thoughts. And like yeah. I said, sometimes that takes some work. That takes some effort to do. Yeah. And, and sometimes thoughts get really, really persistent, and uh, it feels kind of like a challenge to where, in fact, it's not that they're persistent. And it's not so much of a challenge. The real issue is, is that they come back again because we invited them back because we like them again. Yeah. But we do that ignorantly. So now we're waking up. So when we wake up to the fact that here that old thought is back again, I can say, aha, I caught you again. Yeah. There you are again. And so we begin more and more to congratulate ourselves for the fact that we can wake up. In the very beginning, many meditators, especially at the Goenka retreat, and Goenka will say, watch your breath. And then he'll say, if the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. And that phrase has become very, very famous. Never mind, start again. And why? Because nobody, no, people don't do that. They do mind. They mind very much that the mind mm. has wandered away. They don't like it a bit. And they start screaming monkey mind and they start saying meditation is hard. Yeah. Right? So that that's that just fits in with our old style. But when we recognize, oh no, this is time to congratulate ourselves. This is really the time to never mind, start again, to drop the fact that the mind has wandered away from the breath into hindrances. We can come back again and put only wholesome thoughts in the mind. Yeah. Over and over and over again, we do this and we gladden the mind and say, hot dog, I can do this and hot dog, I can do that. And this is what then builds in the fourth ingredient. In the Eightfold Noble Path, last time we talked about uh, right view, right mem uh, remembering, and right effort. Once we start doing that, we begin to build on it. And these things run and circle around each other so that one's right effort increases our right view, and our right view and our right effort helps yeah. build up the sati. And so we remember better. And it gets the ball rolling. And when we get this tricycle off going, 
Now we add a fourth wheel to it. Yeah. And that fourth wheel then is the Samasankapa. And that means now that we're adding right attitude. And the attitude is the attitude of can do this. The attitude of the winner. The attitude of success. Okay. Why? Because we've already gotten the thing rolling. We know it works. But we're now we're going to kick it into high gear is another way of saying it is because we're going to add this can-do attitude to it. Hot dog, we can do this. So that then we come to the position, hey, it doesn't matter how much that mind gets clouded up with hindrances or how mm-hmm. long I let it. As soon as I remember, I can pop that stuff right out of the mind and I can come right into the present moment. Yeah. That's an important point. I definitely recognize that because I feel that during right effort, my awareness changed like the time or during my time before our last talk, I was more on autopilot than on being aware because I was just thinking I'm riding my bike or I'm feeling a bad feeling and um, it became more an autopilot and now through right effort, I recognize that I'm much more aware in grabbing the bad thoughts and handling mm-hmm. them in the right way. So like you say, it's like a wheel, if I got you right. Right. Or as, really... uh, let us say it's a positive feedback system or a positive yeah. feedback loop means that once the ball gets rolling, it continues to roll just like an avalanche. An yeah, avalanche is, exactly is a positive what... feedback system, okay? Or even rolling a snowball down the hill, and that yeah. snowball will grow in size as it goes down the hill. This is exactly like that. That's why one's right effort, that is effort in the beginning, winds up being unremitting energy. Yeah. So that you become exuberant. Okay, that that's part of the uh, the seven factors of enlightenment is this uh, effervescence or exuberance or um, overflowing of uh, energy that got started from one's right effort of changing the mind from unwholesome to wholesome. So it's also rooted that energy has an extra kick to it. Because it's not the energy that one puts in from the perspective of or the position of a victim or a loser or one who is, um, uh, let us say, capable of it only at great expense. Rather, we're of the opinion or of the life position or the attitude is that this is easy. This is a piece of cake. I can handle this. This is all right. There's nothing problem here. You know. Okay, so now we're changing the whole attitude from the attitude of the victim into the attitude of a winner, from the attitude of this is hard work into, wow, this is a piece of cake. Okay, I get it. Okay. And that attitude also is that attitude that I mentioned just before and the Buddha makes a big point about this, and that is, is that uh, understanding what uh, obstructions or hindrances are of the mind and knowing what is wholesome and unwholesome in that regard, that it doesn't matter how much unwholesomeness I have to deal with, I can throw that stuff out and bring myself back into the winner's position so that I can handle this. Okay? Okay. Now, uh so the cop stops me and after a flash of anger and i can get myself really angry i've been angry but i can also catch it and i say hey i don't have to be angry this is not a good time to be angry not with this cop let's let's get the mojo flowing let's get our good attitude going let's deal with this guy let's say yes sir i'll do anything you want sir (laughs) okay no, but the the reason that uh, that cops have so much trouble is because when the cops stop them, everyone is either in fear or in fear motivated anger, and the, the cops want to present themselves as powerful. All right. All right. But 
the cop would just as soon be powerful among friends who just accept him in his powerful position rather than people who are like this because when we're like this we we might do that you know yeah so this is why being in a really good spirit with people when you're in tense situations takes all the tension out of it not just for you but for him also yeah i see It's like a backbiting dog. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, dogs are very good at that. They know what fear is. I've seen that. I've proved that myself many times since I heard it when I was young. And that is dogs only bark at people who are afraid of them. If yeah. the people are not afraid of the dog, like the people have been at the house before and they know the dog, the dog is not maybe not even remember whether this person's been here before. But the person himself will tell the dog whether the person thinks he belongs here or not. Yeah. And if the person says, I don't belong here, then the dog will say, you're right, you don't. Bark, 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 bark. <laughs> <laughs> and yet some people who are around dogs and know dogs about this, they put their hand out and they say, hi, dog. And the dog says, hi, back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure. Okay, Definitely. guess what? In that regard, not taking the analogy too far, but that same situation is with the cops too. Yeah. If you're very friendly with them, they'll be friendly back. If you act afraid of them, they're going to bark at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So the, what we're saying here is that we do create our own reality. In that regard, we create our own reality all the time. So if you go around creating for yourself on a moment-by-moment -moment wholesome, happy, safe reality, then your reality will be safe and happy. So you are more the, the creator of than just being a you victim. You are of. the creator of your own reality and always have been. But now we can begin to see it through waking up. But it's not just the waking up, but it's the waking up to the fact that we can control it. We can manipulate it, that you are, in fact, the boss of your life. If you take control. Yeah. If you take control, then that it belongs to you until then. It's the boss of you. And so people go around in bad feelings being controlled by those bad feelings. Yeah. But once you recognize that you are, in fact, able to control your bad feelings through your own thoughts, then you can control the way that you feel. And to now you can live the way that you want to live, feel the way you want to feel. That's, so that's the secret to the teaching of the Buddha, and it all has to go back to that taking the right effort to change the mind, and then we get really good at it. And so we know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this is the path of the Buddha. Yeah. The last time you put up the example of the snake you are grabbing by hand and handle it in the right way, and this is what I feel right now is like you talking about taking control of your life mm -hmm. and this i really felt during the last time definitely during everyday life but also during meditation isn't that interesting because a lot of people talk about the eightfold noble path of the buddha and they don't recognize how profound this is is a method of actually taking control of your life so that you can avoid the dangers and difficulties and come right out of your own dukkha yeah Definitely. It's profound. It's so powerful. It's so strong. And yet by the time it's taught to the kids, it's kind of wishy-washy. It's kind of stuff that you put up on the blackboard for them to write down so that they can memorize it. And the funny part of it is, is that so many people get it wrong right from the get-go. They will say, oh, the first noble truth, life is suffering. And they've already made a huge mistake. Hmm. I don't really get that. Can you explain well, it a little more? Well, because life is not suffering. Life is just life. Ah, life okay, is so, what you make of it. Ah, so it's more the like right way is... to, The right way to state it is just there is suffering. 
It yeah. does exist. But there's no reason for it to exist. Okay. But it does because have you... a cause. It does exist. And then we recognize, oh, the real reason why it exists is because we're too stupid to recognize that we're doing <laughs> stupid things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But when we wake up and investigate, we can recognize, no, there is very wholesome ways of doing things that do not create disasters. And that the biggest one of all is basically wanting things that we don't have. And when we see people and hear about people who are in the state of, of um, not wanting things that they don't have, then they say, oh, I want to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do some meditation so I can become enlightened too. Yeah. <laughs> and so off they go into a practice of enlightenment that's built upon greed, missing the second noble truth completely. Mm -hmm. This is why we have to teach it in certain in just a certain way so that people begin to see that. What is suffering is, is things that we make in the mind. Having unwholesome thoughts like wanting something that we don't have, but a more wholesome thought would be, you've already got what you need. You're okay. Everything is fine. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's just a matter of the way that we talk to ourselves based upon the attitude and we start off with the attitude of a loser, someone who needs something, someone who is missing something. Perhaps it was something that was stolen from him. <laughs> <laughs> and he wants it back and he's out <laughs> revenge. <laughs> and somehow we get the idea that because some government or some priest or some religion or some teachers or some adults uh, are in a position of authority, it's them. They stole it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so the poor child, in ignorance, not knowing what he's doing, starts down the path of the rebel. And he rebels and he rebels and he rebels because that's all he knows how to do. But it does not bring happiness. Brings him a lot of suffering. Yeah. Okay. And so this is one of the ways of getting started. But what it is, is always based upon ignorance because when we're should, everybody recognizes right now you're a whole lot smarter than you were when you were in the first grade. Definitely. Have you ever had the idea, wow, if I knew what I knew now and went back to the first grade, hot dog, what a good student I would be. Yeah, well, guess what? The first grader is going to gang up on you. You better watch out. <laughs> you don't belong there. <laughs> but anyway, this whole idea then about trying to go back and get a do-over and do it again and um, compete on an unplay, unlevel playing field. This is all part of that unwholesomeness of trying to regain the control that we thought that we had lost. By the time that we'd gotten into the first grade, we were already missing something. And we thought everybody else had it except for me. And so kids grow up wanting to be somebody else at a different age than they are, looking differently. The boys want to be a girl, and they don't want to tell anybody. And the girls want to be a boy, and they don't want to tell anybody. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what it is. I'm not good enough. And this is what is the underlying foundation of the fact that we all grow up into adulthood feeling like losers. Guess what? You're not. You really are the emperor of your own pile of dirt. Yeah. The question is, are you going to be buried under it or are you going to sit on top of the world? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, most emperors I know are half buried or deeply buried under, under their own pile of dirt. And what is that pile of dirt? They're past. Yeah. 
They're composted crap. That's what it is. <laughs> okay. And so this is what we draw on for nourishment rather than getting out of that and living on top of it, living above it. But in fact, this is a really excellent analogy for the Pali word uh, Lokatara, which is translated into the word supramundane. Mm. Okay. Achad Poe really loves that word supramundane. <laughs> <laughs> and it literally is getting out of it. So this is being in the world and this is being above the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Getting on top of it, saying, Aha, I see what that is. And then we can remove ourselves from it. We can let that stuff go. We can see that, yes, at one time I got gratification out of it, but now I see the danger in it. And from that danger, I can plot my escape. Yeah. So in a way, you could think of this whole teaching then is also a cost-benefit analysis. What's the benefit and what's the cost? Before, we only saw the benefit, and we didn't recognize what the cost was. That's the ignorance. If I want that thing, and I'll do anything to get it, except that anything may be way too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question, Bunter. Mm -hmm. Well, um, also my meditation practice changed during our last teaching. And what I found out is that I got a very pleasant feeling in the body, like my body started felt very light and mm -hmm. I had a very great feeling. Um, Oxygen will be... do that for you. <laughs> um, what would be the next step? Is it just um, enjoy? Just enjoy? Yeah. Pump yourself up and, and get some air in there and get, get things going. Um, and enjoy, but now the enjoyment is to enjoy the experience of it. And what I mean by that is now is the time when real noting begins. Mm. Okay. Okay. Except that now the only thing there is to note are wholesome things. Mm. Okay. Which is the feeling or... What is it exactly then? Is it the feeling then? A whole bunch of stuff. The Buddha's got quite a long list, in fact. It takes about three lines of text to get all the things in there. Okay. Okay. But we know where he got the list. Mm -hmm. We can look right there and say, Aha, Buddha, I know what you're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> And that is, is that think about the things that are wholesome and start to investigate things that are wholesome and notice that as you're investigating this wholesome thing, that is that it will pass away and you'll note another wholesome thing. And as you note this new wholesome thing, this old one will die out. And then when you begin to note this next wholesome thing, then the noting of this wholesome thing dies out. It's always the arising and the passing away, that things arise only to flitter away. So even the wholesome things will arise and pass away. If we are doing the noting of the arising and passing away and the stuff that's arising and passing away is unwholesome, then we think good riddance and I'm glad that I'm finished with that only to be disappointed when it arises again. <laughs> okay. Okay. But if we're only doing that with the wholesome, that also means that we're also paying attention to what's real because almost always the unwholesome is not real. It's based in the past. It's based in desire. It's based in the future. It's based in, something that's not completely real. But if we're uh, finished with the unreal, the unwholesome, and we're dealing only with the real and the wholesome, then that means that we're more likely going to be dealing with things that are really true and really in extent right now. Okay, so let's go uh, uh, through that because if we are in the state of the mind being very wholesome and we have the body energized, what that means is, is that we feel pretty good. 
We've actually yeah. talked ourselves into feeling really good. We do have the supa and we do have the pity, and the pity can be expressed as either the tingling of the body or the feeling in the sense of I can do this, the winner, that this is nice. Comes, you know, this is good stuff. Got it. Good at love, that's right. Okay. So when we are in that state, then we begin to notice these things. We're still going to do a full on investigation, but now what we're investigating is, in fact, this very good feeling of sukha. We're going to also investigate that attitude of, I can do this. We also investigate the fact that we can apply the mind to the wholesome and keep it sustained there. In essence, now, what I'm actually saying is, is that the first group of items on the Buddha's list of things to observe while you're in the first jhana are the factors of first jhana. Funny like that, isn't it? That's the first thing he puts up there. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because that's what's happening right now, is that you do have sukha, you do have pity, you do feel really good, you do feel like you're on top of your own pile of dirt. Okay, so while we're feeling that way, we investigate that the, uh, the, the, the properties, the qualities of that. We also investigate the qualities of the, of the skills that we got into that state with, in the sense of this is right sati how is my sati in fact that's one of the things that we always put on the list of every list is always put sati in there and here it shows up in this list simply because it's part of the eightfold noble path so one of the things to investigate is how's my sati am i waking up am i getting faster can i note things quick okay how's my sati how's my investigation how's my effort How's my attitude? So we're going right back into the qualities of the first jhana is also the qualities of the skills that were developed with the Eightfold Noble Path. Interesting. Okay. And then the next group of things are going to be the secondary things that are associated with that. And one of them would be, well, how's my relaxation? How's my tranquility? How's my... Um, effort or energy, how is my pity, how is my sukha, how is my tranquility or relaxation, okay, these are the kind of qualities that we look for, but in this regard, I have just now gone down into the list of the Sambhojana, the seven factors of enlightenment. Ah, okay, ah, yeah. now I yeah. get it, yeah. Okay. Now you're getting it. Okay. And so we have enthusiasm. We have uh, um, uh, tranquility or relaxation. We have integration in the sense of, is my mind finally settling down into a unit, mm. into a wholeness? Okay. So because when we have the jhana factors together, the first jhana, the mind becomes unified and whole. And it's not split between wholesome and unwholesome anymore. It's fully wholesome. Yeah, I get it. So to, to get you right, it's on the one hand, it is enjoying first jhana, jhana factors. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, it's investigating. Investigating that state that we're in, because if we investigate it fully, we're going to figure out how to make it better and better. It's like a, a, a race car engine uh, mechanic who is sitting there listening and tuning and tweaking and tuning and figuring out what's going on and <laughs> that engine more powerful. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, this is how we do it is. And, and by doing that, uh, this is the right way to go right into then some other deeper things. And that would be the actual components of the mind itself in the sense of investigating not just the pity and the sukha and the tranquility but we we deal we go a little deeper into the nature of those feelings mm -hmm. down to how feelings contact us and uh how perception guides that contact okay now at this level we're talking about the levels of the teacher samapada the actual how the processes of how the mind works 
but we don't go to the second half of Paticca Samapada, which we'll talk about later, uh, the mm -hmm. whole show. But we're not going to go then from Vedana into Tanha, Upadana, uh, Bhava, Jati, and uh, Dukkha. Why? Well, Tanha and Upadana are grasping, clinging, rebirth, reborn into the woeful states of Dukkha. Why? Because we've got only wholesome thoughts going here, bub. We're not going off into that direction. We're staying in the wholesome. So those are things, that part of the of uh, Paticca Samapada, we're going to interrupt because now we do have wisdom at that point of contact. We actually see how things begin to contact us. And with that, that's the door into understanding perception and how perception and consciousness work together. And all of this can be figured out by simply watching how the mind is working. How does those thoughts arise? What is going on in there? Okay. But we can't do it when the mind is crowded with hindrances. We'll grab hold what... of some thought and off we go with it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is also part of investigation during mm -hmm. first jhana because this is the point where you can see clearly where you can see clearly, right? So now that we can see clearly, let's go look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's go take a peek. It. Now we've gotten ready to look. So that's the difference is, is that in most of the techniques, I say, go look for it. Tally ho, the fox, go get it. All right. <laughs> Buddha says, wait a minute. Why don't we get a saddle on the horse? and get the dogs collected together and get in some nice clothing and let's make a sport out of this. And then yeah. when we're ready to go, now we'll go get the fox. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We got to get ourselves all dressed up for this show, which means we got to clean out all the junk and all the unwholesome and all the dangers and fears and anxieties and get the mind in really good shape, tip top shape. And then we can go off on that fox hunt. Yeah. And is first jhana the best place to, to do it? That's what the Buddha says, and that's what it seems to be. Okay. Now, I will add this caveat, and that is, is that as you get very, very skilled in this first jhana, there will be other doors open. But mm -hmm. another way of uh, talking about it is in, in a physical reality. How can you get one note out of a violin? Uh, of a what? Out of a violin, a fiddle. Oh, I don't know. Ah, you know. Okay. Yeah. Violin. How get, how yeah. How, how do you get one, one note out of, out of a violin? Okay. The way that you get a note out of the violin is number one. You've got to have a violin. <laughs> yeah. That is definitely okay. right. <laughs> and number two, you have to have one string on that violin. So let's think of first jhana like that is the first thing we've got to do with the with first jhana is get a violin. We've got to get a fiddle. If we're going to fiddle with something, we've got to have a fiddle. Okay. <laughs> That's most of the work. That means that we've got to get all the non-fiddle out of it. So that there's only fiddle left. Fit as a fiddle, so they speak. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and so that means that once we get the the, uh, the instrument built so that we can play one note, adding the extra three strings is quite easy. 90% of the time and effort that it takes is going to be just to get into and begin to manage first jhana. Once that happens, then we can do something new. But I the see. first thing is, is that we've got to get into the first jhana. And basically, the Buddha talks about it in the sense of that once we have the thoughts all in a row, one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, that's like the cow herd getting his uh, cows into a pasture where they're doing wholesome things so that he does not have to stand there with a stick to guard them. He can go sit down under a tree. And the Buddha then likens that to where once we get the thoughts wholesome, one thought, a wholesome thought after another wholesome thought that's well investigated for a long time, that means that now we can begin to put some gaps in those thoughts. 
but that all the observation that we're going to be able to do in this can be done in the first jhana. That in fact, what happens is, is that we, when we begin to put the gaps in the thoughts is when we can begin to see things a little more clearly, but we can see them while we're giving running dialogue also. So as we call, progress through the jhanas, what that only means is, is that some of the items of the wholesome that are on the list of first jhana get removed. That's all. <laughs> there is never a time when we go and sprinkle fear, disgust, misery, or any of those, that kind of <laughs> desire for stuff that you find on Mahasi's path up at step five, six, seven, and eight. We're way down there at step one now. We're still at, uh, at the state of purifying the mind. So as we get the mind completely purified, then we can begin to put some gaps in it. And the gaps in when between the thoughts would then be second jhana. Uh, okay. But that's when we begin to uh, not think about how good we feel. We just feel good. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So the the thinking of the feeling is that vitaka vichara and second jhana is without that. Is that right? Or exactly. Uh, uh -huh. Okay. So thinking our way into feeling, and then we yeah. begin to put some space in those thoughts so that we begin to experience just the feeling itself. And pretty soon we're left with nothing but the feelings themselves with no thoughts much. Okay. And if I got you right, this is the right point to just note. And always just noting of what's there and what's not there. But in second jhana, we do live off the applied and sustained thinking. Yeah, okay. But there is still the pity and the sukha of the second jhana. And that, that in the second jhana, after the mind is completely still and we are, um, let us say, so exhilarated and so euphoric and so happy, we realize that that euphoria is a little bit of work. And so going into the third jhana is just letting that euphoria melt into a really easy, happy, comfortable state. And sometimes that happens really quickly for people. Like I said, that second and third string can come in really easily once we get the foundation of the first jhana. Okay. That people, in fact, will float in and out of first and second and third. It actually begins to, uh, when you start recognizing them, that's how you can classify them. Of, oh, this is definitely third jhana. <laughs> oh, this is definitely second jhana. Okay. And so that's how you begin to notice it. But it's all in the sense of there's still only a few things to note. Like enthusiasm. Mm. Tranquility. Relaxation. These are the things that are left and also the actual functioning of the mind. Consciousness and perception is still there. Only now you've gotten so much of the other splitter cleared out of the way that you can actually eat more easily, see the consciousness in the higher jhanas. Okay. Because you're still thinking and still feeling in the lower jhanas, it's a little bit more difficult to see the perception. You could see it, you could say it this way, that it's not just detectable, it's clearly visible in the first jhana. Hmm. But in the fourth jhana, it'll come beat you up. It'll slap your face. <laughs> it's like there's nothing left, but this is it. Okay, watching how this mind works is basically the only thing that's left in the higher jhanas because we have, in fact, by then put away the the pleasures and the joys and the feelings mm. so that we can get right down to what is consciousness, what is okay. perception. Okay. But that means that now the mind is very sharp, not dull at all. This is not deep meditation. It's going not deep. It's going bright. It's getting <laughs> sharper and more focused and more clear. <laughs> so the and also more subtle because it's almost like this. Here's a good analogy. Uh -huh. A high-speed film camera. In the very, very early days of photography, they had to put those box cameras on uh, tripods. Mm -hmm. Had to. Why? Because uh, uh, the uh, the silver oxide uh, coating 
had to have a lot of light to expose it. And so people had mm-hmm. to sit for a long period of time right out of the broad daylight. Okay? <laughs> and that okay. they would take they'd take their lunch cover off, hold it one, two, three, and put it back on and leave the lens <laughs> open for three seconds. That means the camera has to be really stable. So uh-huh. that means that when our when our um when our mind is very slow, we're going to miss a lot of things. But now modern cameras, we have really high speed film. We can do things really quickly with film so that now what used to take three seconds exposure, they can do that in, uh, you know, 400 film, 1600, you know. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is the, the quality of Sati. Start investigating. How, how quick am I? How's my yeah. response time? How long does that thought recur before uh, I caught you? I can yeah. see what's going on. And so this is a, this is a part of the process that these are the skills that we develop in the first jhana, that if we go from the first jhana to the fourth jhana, for most people, once they get there, they don't know what to do. They don't have the skills developed. But this is, in fact, what happens with all the jhana dudes. It happened to uh, students of the Buddha, and it happened to the Buddha, too. Mm-hmm. The Buddha recognized, oh, no, it's the first jhana is the path to enlightenment. That's where all of the work is done. Okay, okay getting so into first... and developing the first jhana. That's the one that requires all the skills. Once you fully develop the first jhana and do all the work that you need to do in the first jhana, the other jhanas will be quite natural. They fall into place. Okay. But if you struggle and gain them very quickly, you won't know what to do with them when you got them. I see. All right. But when we develop correctly, that means that we know exactly what to do because we've been doing all of that stuff in first jhana. Now the list is just getting shorter and shorter, which means now we spend more and more time or mind moments on perception itself until we really understand it. And the connections therein. And this is what those higher jhanas are all about is what you can do when your mind is really sharp, really focused. So not to... concentrated, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> just just sharp, fast, able to see I what's see. happening at the mind at a very subtle, very quick level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK, I see. Like the time that it takes from the time of looking at a tree to the time of saying or even thinking that that I see a tree. That's the time frame that we're looking at. And all of that took what? Three or four tenths of a second at most. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why we have to get really fast is to be able to see that stuff. But in the beginning, because the mind is wholesome, we can see the things more lingering, but we can still see them arising and passing away and arising and passing away and begin to see everything in that rising and passing away motion. So now you can begin to see those same waves in consciousness itself, arising and passing away and perception arising and passing away. Only it takes me 10,000 times as long to say that as it does for it to actually occur. <laughs> is right. this also a, a way to understand impermanence? This is impermanence. You're seeing it directly now. Okay. That's what this is all about, is to actually see, but it's not the event that's mm-hmm. impermanent. It's the mind. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. It's the mind. It's the observer that's coming and going and coming mm-hmm. and going. Every time we take a different object, and we're going to be taking a whole bunch of objects, but all of them in this case is wholesome, as opposed to the Mahasti method, which is anything that come come up. No, <laughs> and we've got a short list here, <laughs> yeah. about fifteen or twenty items on that list, but we've already gone over the gist of it. Yeah. Okay. So I really and, feel like yeah. Okay, so so even though we are um, progressing in the jhanas. All that means is is that there is less to look at and more time to look at it. Mm-hmm. But we can see perception, we can see consciousness, we can see Vedana, we can see how that Vedana and the perception contacts us to give us these feelings. 
right there in first jhana we can see how the mind works and this is right not just because i say so this is the buddha's list mm-hmm. and so, so this is what we mean by the noting then is we have to get ourselves into a really really nice state that we call the first jhana and mm-hmm. now we're only going to note what's there and everything that we note is wholesome So this is the next thing to do. I was uh, the question was what I do with that feeling and now you know. Yeah, this is and what I know. Yeah. All of it. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Definitely. Okay, Peter, we'll, we'll finish this call off now, and you go play with this. Yeah. Don't think Thank of this as work to do. This is a new toy to play with. Your own mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you feedback in some time. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. we'll see you. I'm happy to see you again, Bud. Thank you yeah. very much. Uh huh. Bye bye. Bye bye.